Okay, well, uh, button up. Because I think, looking at my notes, I think this is going to be a long episode. I got a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff I want to talk about. And uh, before my phone starts giving me interference here, let me throw it on the ground. Okay, much better. Yeah, so I have a lot of stuff I want to talk about. And uh, one of the main reasons I think that I have so much stuff on the list today, uh, actually two reasons. The first reason is I'm starting to get more normal sleep. I'm hesitant to use those words. But uh, like last night, I fell asleep. I woke up after an hour, fell asleep, woke up after an hour. That's been pretty normal for months upon months upon months. But then the next time I went to sleep, I got three hours. And the next time I went to sleep after that, I got three hours. And I don't remember the last time that I was able to get actual deep sleep. So because of that, today my brain is... It's firing, I don't want to say on all cylinders, but it's firing on more cylinders. And over the past few days, I've been inching more and more towards that better sleep. And my brain fog has been lifting and like the lethargy, I guess it's not really lethargy if you're sleep deprived and exhausted. The exhaustion has been slowly wearing off. So I've been more aware of things. You know, when you're, when you're sleep deprived, you're exhausted, you're tired. Your short-term memory sucks. So you're exposed to a lot of things, but they just disappear instantly. Like, like Memento, if anybody even remembers that movie. Uh, the other reason that I think that I have so much stuff on the list or that I know I have so much stuff on the list is, for a while, I've been doing this, I guess, scripted episodes where I work on an arc, and then I record it and I put music underneath it and then balancing that with recently doing the small talk episodes. I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to do that anymore because I realized that I can do them both in the same format, that everything can be the casual style of the small talk format. And then I can add segments that are more prepared, but I don't have to prepare an entire episode and try to fit all the things that I want to talk about into some kind of arc, which is what I was trying to do. And because of that, I had all of these drafts just sitting there of partially finished episodes that I like, I don't know where to go beyond this. Like, this is the thing I want to talk about. If I go beyond this, then I have to read more or, you know, I have to go find another book about this. And it... It was becoming like I was writing research papers instead of just podcast episodes. So because of that stockpile, now I have a bunch of stuff that I can bring into episodes as, uh, I guess if we were talking about this in radio terms as segments. So I have a lot of that stuff to begin to go through. And one of those that we're going to do at the end of this episode is actually a really long segment, but I just think it's completely fascinating. And it's about the Amazon jungle. So make sure you stick around for that segment. And also stick around to the end because I have a couple little items of news. Um, while we're talking about personal stuff, my brain coming back online, me getting my sleep a little bit better. Uh, when you start to improve, things don't always go just uphill. Sometimes you have setbacks. 
couple of days ago, I had my first ocular migraine. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had an ocular migraine or if you even know what an ocular migraine is. I wasn't sure what the word for it was when it was happening. I looked it up later. That's why I know the terminology. But I was sitting at the computer working on something. And what I was reading on the screen was white background and kind of like gray text. And as I'm reading the screen, I start finding myself. I'm like, man, I'm having a real difficult time here focusing on what's in front of me. And the more I started to really pay attention to how much difficulty I was having, I, I thought it was just frustration. Like, am I just frustrated and that's why I can't read this? And then I started to actually look at the screen and realize that I couldn't make out the words. There was a, I don't want to say a blind spot, but a, you know, if you stare at the sun and you get that sunspot on your vision, I had that right in the center of my vision, which is kind of, but it wasn't like uh, multicolored. It was like light gray. So it kind of fit into what I was looking at, which is why I didn't notice at first. And plus all of the letters in the periphery everywhere, except the center of my vision were normal, but I couldn't read them because, you know, you can't really read with your peripheral vision. Suddenly I realized I'm like, oh my, oh, there's something with my eyes right now. What is going on? And I went and I sat down. And then when I sat down, I actually laid down. When I laid down, uh, it transferred from like this blind spot into like this crescent, you know, like a, a C or a, a sliver of a moon on the left side of my vision. And then it started going multicolor and like zigzag patterns. And then it was like flashing. And I also had like this pain in my temple, not the crushing pain that you associate with a migraine, but just like pain on the temple. Like somebody was pushing their finger in my temple really hard. And, uh, I had that for about 40 minutes and then it went away. And then that's when I kind of looked things up and found out, oh, that's an ocular migraine. And, uh, I think I'm pretty sure that it had to do with I was sitting in front of the computer. I was focusing on this stuff. I was frustrated. I was leaning forward. Um, and I have repetitive strain injury in my neck because I tend to lean forward when I'm at the desk towards the screen, such as sitting back. So the, there was this pain in the base of my neck that I was feeling. I think all of that just like gave me a tension headache. And then the tension headache led to this ocular migraine. And you throw the exhaustion and stuff on top of that. So yeah, that sucked. So it was really good that the day or two days afterwards, all of a sudden I'm starting to get more normal sleep, but the more normal sleep, uh, is not something that happens on accident. I've had to work to make my sleep more normal. So before we go into like all of the media stuff that I always talk about, you know, like what I've been watching, what I've listening, what I'm listening to. I wanted to, having gone through this experience, knowing there's other people out there that have sleep, some sleep problems, I just wanted to walk through stuff that I've done that's helped to improve my sleep. And uh, hopefully it will be useful to someone else out there. So one of the first things, I'm, I'm going to go through this kind of in the order that I do things during the day. And this is, this is something that's developed over time, obviously, because uh, 
I didn't ever, I never had sleep problems that I was aware of, not like this in my life. So I had to do a lot of research and trial and error. So the first thing I do is about middle of the day, I'll have my first cup of tea. And in my first cup of tea, I have three tea bags. I have one tea bag that is ashwagandha. Ashwagandha is one of the things it's said to help with is to um, lower your cortisol levels, which is your stress hormone levels. So if you're exhausted or your stress is affecting your sleep or more likely both, and they're in a vicious cycle, this will help to lower that a little bit. Uh, I have tea that's St. John's wort, which is good for depression and light anxiety. Just takes a tiny bit of edge off. And then I put some decaf green tea in because uh, green tea is always good for you. It's good for your blood vessels in particular. And decaf, because I don't do caffeine. Because when you have sleep problems, uh, you shouldn't do caffeine. In fact, the more I read about sleep and caffeine, nobody should do caffeine. Because it has a half-life of like uh, six hours. Which means if you drink a cup of coffee at 9 a.m., at, then at 9 p.m., you still have a fourth of the cap of caffeine from that cup of coffee in your system. Which means for the average office worker who has like four cups a day, when you go to bed at night, you still have a full cup of coffee in your bloodstream. And while you think that doesn't disturb your sleep, scientists <laughs> say differently. You don't reach the same levels of deep sleep um, with caffeine in your system. Alcohol too is a big one, but I, I don't drink anymore. So, uh, next thing I do, this is later that actually when I'm done recording this, I'm probably going to go to this step. This is like later in the evening when I'm winding down, I have a cup of tea. That's two tea bags. One is passion flower. One is chamomile. You know what chamomile is. Everybody knows what chamomile is. Makes you sleepy. It's good for relaxing. Passion flower does that as well. So have that. And then. These ones were, the, those are, those are easy, the easy steps. These are the more difficult steps. These last uh, three of, of these last four are the most difficult steps. First one is put my phone down at least an hour before bed. This is no joke. And I don't think this has anything necessarily to do with blue light or any of that stuff. It just keeps your mind racing or at least mine. So if I'm looking at my phone Anytime near bed, I can't turn my brain off to get into the relaxed state to go to sleep. So I end up playing in bed for like an hour before I fall asleep. So instead, I put the phone away an hour earlier. And then when I get into bed, like last night, I went into bed and it only took me about 10 minutes to fall asleep. So that's a big one. It's difficult. It's so difficult. Uh... I think to be even better would be to turn off TV an hour before, but I like watching TV up until the time I go to bed. So that one might be more difficult. Uh, next one, also difficult. Stop drinking and eating two hours before bed. This is for two different reasons. Actually, three. Um, for me, because of the long-term sleep deprivation, my blood sugar is affected. And because my blood sugar is higher, Due to the sleep deprivation, uh, sugar affects me strongly. So if I eat anything that has even a mild sugar response, 
it will wire me and then I'll get restless leg syndrome in bed. So that's part of the reason. Another reason as I started discovering one of the reasons I hated, uh, waking up so often is because most of the time I woke up, I woke up in the middle of a nightmare and the nightmares were coming from food in my stomach. It just happens. It didn't matter what I ate. If there's food in my stomach, when I go to sleep, I have nightmares. I wake up with my heart racing. And then instead of just like sucking, having to wake up every hour, I would wake up from a nightmare every hour. So eight nightmares a night. So yeah, no eating two hours before bed. And then the drinking thing, because I found out that one of the things about waking up often during the night, if you drink liquid too close to bed, then every time you wake up, you have to pee, which means you have to get up. You have to go somewhere, which means when you come back, going back to sleep takes a lot longer. Whereas if you don't have to pee and you wake up, you could just roll over and go back to sleep. And it's almost, it's, it's not as disruptive to your sleep because you're not as far out of the sleep cycle as you would be if you walked across the room, handled your genitals <laughs> and flushed the toilet and came back. So those are big ones and it's not easy. I am a person who unfortunately suffers from middle of the night cravings. Like if I get up and go to the bathroom, I have a real difficult time with self-control walking past food. In the daytime, I have all the self-control and willpower over food. But when I'm tired and it's the middle of the night, it's like a different person's in control. Oh, Reese's Pieces. Let's eat that right now. I don't have Reese's Pieces on my counter, but you get my point. Uh, next one. This one was very difficult too. Of the three, this one probably was the most difficult. I now spend nine and a half hours in bed. Not asleep. Um, but I... I spent nine and a half hours in bed. Um, I didn't pick specifically to aim for nine and a half hours. It just happens to be that's the amount of time that I spent. I didn't specifically said it's not 10 hours. It's not nine hours. I need nine and a half. No, it just worked out this way. The reason I do this is, uh, number one, I don't, when I first get into bed, I don't necessarily get into bed immediately to go to sleep. I might still be watching something. I just made sure I had it set bedtime. And if I'm still watching something, there's like 20 minutes of it left. I'll watch the last 20 minutes in bed. And then, you know, I assume it's going to take me about a half hour to fall asleep. So I'm right there. I'm losing an hour. So now I'm only in bed for a little over. I only have eight and a half hours left to sleep. And then depending on how many times I wake up in the middle of the night, I'm also losing sleep there. So adding extra hours to my time in bed gives me actually more time to sleep and to get closer to that eight hour mark. And I'm in sleep deprivation. So ideally I should be sleeping more than eight hours to try to relieve some of my sleep debt. And then the last one, this is the newest one. This is what I did for the first time last night. And I think it's in addition to everything else I said, I think this is the thing that put me over the edge to get me to be able to sleep in two different sessions for three hours. And because I said, I, uh, don't drink within two hours of bed, the chamomile that I'm drinking earlier is wearing, it's not necessarily wearing off, but it's not making me like, 
ooh, I'm so tired, I need to go to bed. And then sending me straight to bed, like it was before. But then I was going to bed with like a full thing of tea in my bladder. So instead, I have the chamomile earlier to get me even more rested. And then right before, like an hour before bed, I take this pill that is chamomile and turmeric. And that just, I didn't even, when I went to bed last night, I didn't feel more tired, but it must have kicked in after I was in bed and already asleep and helped me to stay asleep. So that's the last trick. I'm adding something else to my routine this week as well, which we will talk about next week when I know how it works because I just got it today. All right. My mouth is clicking. Let me put some water in. Hmm. So thirsty today. So that's all I want to talk about with health and stuff like that. I don't know. Um, I feel like I'm almost developing some sort of routine here. Kind of like starting off with like personal stuff. Then we move into like the media stuff. So let's talk about some of this media stuff. That's my hands. To warm them up. Okay. So the, the album that I've been listening to this week, the one that I posted onto uh, Return to Albums on Instagram, is number two, or I.I. by Meat Puppets. This is so interesting to listen to because I'm not sure if you, if you are familiar with Meat Puppets. You have probably heard at least one of their songs, especially if you're a Nirvana fan or even just a casual Nirvana listener. Mostly because if you're a casual Nirvana listener, your favorite Nirvana album is probably MTV, MTV Unplugged in New York session. And in that MTV Unplugged in New York session, Kurt Cobain covered three Meat Puppet songs. In fact, he brought the two brothers that are the main members of the Meat Puppets, the Kirkwood brothers, on stage to do those three songs with him. And those songs are Plateau, Oh Me, and Lake of Fire. And number two by Meat Puppets is kind of the stereotypical Meat Puppets album to listen to because those three songs are on this album. But it also happens to be, in my personal opinion, their strongest album and their best album. I'm not a complete Meat Puppets connoisseur. I only know like three or four albums. But of the three or four I've heard, including Back, I mean, uh, including Too High to Die, which had the 90s hit Backwater, which is probably their most popular song. This album just kicks that album's butt. There's just a weirdness to this album that's just so original. And it's not even just because of those three three songs. In fact, there's an, an instrumental song called Aurora Borealis, which is just incredible. But what's really interesting in the context of Kurt Cobain and listening to this Meat Puppets album is, first of all, how how much he nailed the vocal delivery of these three songs in that unplugged session. Because when you listen to this Meat Puppets album, it sounds almost identical to what Kurt, Kurt Cobain did with it, with his voice. And there's a reason for that. The reason for that is, in my personal opinion, if you were to take three vocal styles and mix them together, you'd have 90% of who Kurt Cobain was as a singer. And that is, take the Kirkwood brothers from Meat Puppets, especially on this album. 
mix them with Buzz Osborne from Melvin's and Henry Rollins' uh, performance on the Black Flag album, My War. You mix those three together and you're most of the way towards Kurt Cobain's voice. And if you bought that notebook, you know, like Kurt Cobain had his notebook um, that they found, you know, after he, after he died and they published it and it, you know, it looks, it's not typed up. It's, it looks like it's, his, it's in his handwriting. And in that there's tons, tons and tons of lists of albums. And if you go back and you listen to or read interviews with Kurt Cobain, he was always, always paying homage or homage, if I want to say the word correctly, always paying homage to the bands and the albums that he loved. Always. He wore his influences on his sleeve. And I think the reason they covered Plateau, Oh Me and Lake of Fire, is because he realized how much he owed his vocal style to the Meat Puppets. Or sorry, Meat Puppets. There's no the in their name. And I don't know, maybe it's because this album is so tied to that unplugged album that this album, when you listen to it, or when I listen to it again this week, sounds like a 90s album. This is not a 90s album. I want you to listen to this album and then try to, try to put in your head the reality that this album was released in 1984. I don't think there was anything in the world that sounded like this Meat Puppets album in 1984. So pretty incredible album. Check it out. Let me know what you think of it. You can use contact page on the website. You can, you know, send me, we'll, we'll talk about contact things at the end, but, uh, another way that since it's a album related thing, you can always use my albums, return to albums, Instagram account. And let me know right on the post about this album, what you think about it if you listen to it. Uh, speaking of things to listen to, I'm personally, when it comes to podcasts, there's two things that I kind of avoid in general. Lately, it has been interview podcasts. Not all of them. I still listen to a couple here and there, but I got burned out on it because everybody suddenly had an interview podcast and it just got, I got tired of it. The other thing I avoid, and I don't know why, but I've never connected with fictional podcasts. I, I, I love fiction. I like writing fiction, but for some reason, like, I don't know, maybe it just feels too much like radio drama to me and I'm not really into it. It just, it never connected with me. This week that kind of changed at least for one podcast, or I'll just say one season. There's two seasons of this. I've not listened to the second season. I've only listened to the first season. This was recommended. I, I think it was the guys over at Profiles for Eccentricity. They talked about, I think this, on one of their Patreon extras recently. And it is the Marvel Wolverine podcast. Now, granted, I am a fan of Wolverine. So like, that's probably why based on their recommendation, I was a little bit more likely to listen to it knowing it was fictional. They also threw in the words true detective, which is a TV show I loved. 
And so that's probably what made me go listen to it. This first season, I think the first season is called The Long Night, is excellent. And if you're not into podcasts, I mean, sorry, if you're not into comic books, don't pay attention to the fact that it's made by Marvel. Don't pay attention to the fact that it's Wolverine. Because that plays about, at best, 10% of a role in what this is. In fact, Wolverine as a character is talked about more than he is actually in it. Someone is looking for him and there are crimes going on. I'll leave it at that, but I will say this. Amazing sound design. Excellent, excellent. Well-written script, in particular the dialogue, which is what fictional podcasts, in my personal opinion, usually screw up as they have mediocre or shitty dialogue. The dialogue here is very believable. At times, it's a little comic book, too. It is still a comic book thing. But the reason that it all works so well is because the best thing about this show is the voice acting. And nobody's doing a, a, a bombastic performance of some sort. You know, that nobody's trying to steal the stage. It's just the people that they chose to do the role actually sound like human beings. A lot of times, also in fictional podcasts, but in fictional readings, uh, in audiobooks, people are good with their vocal performance and um, being clear and the dynamics of everything. But they have this certain tone that lets you know that they're acting or they're reading. And it doesn't sound like this, like a real person just talking. You know what I mean? This happens in normal acting too, not just voice acting, but with voice acting, it's so much more noticeable. That, from what I remember listening to this, never happens. It sounds legit. So check out Wolverine, Marvel's Wolverine podcast, season one, The Long Night. I liked it. And like I said, since I don't typically like fictional podcasts, that should say something. Hmm. Water, water, water. Next up. I hope I'm not trying to blow through this stuff too fast. There's a part of me in the back of, the, of my mind that's like, well, we have so much stuff, but I can go as long as I want. You know, like you guys can literally pause an episode in the middle and come back and finish it later. It's not like you, not like going to a movie, right? Where you, your whole day is shot if the movie's too long. All right. So in reference to last week, if you remember correctly, I was talking about Ted Lasso and I said, oh, season two. Well, I spoke too soon because season, oh, sorry, episode three of season two, do the rightest thing was wonderful. It was everything that I love about Ted Lasso as a show, everything that I loved about the first season in one episode. It was just the perfect episode to turn, it turned everything around for me. And now, like, I know that there's a fourth set. I think right now there's a fourth episode waiting and I might watch that when I'm done with this because I'm excited again about the show. And it got me thinking when I got to the end of the episode, I actually sat for a little bit and I, 
I'm not going to talk about anything that happened in the episode because you, this isn't the kind of show that you can just talk about that stuff out of context. You have to go on the whole ride. Um, but why? What is it about the show and what is it about this specific episode? And I think that that's, that's why I was able to figure this out to some degree because the episode itself is an encapsulation of the show. So I could just examine, okay, what is it that worked about this episode? And then I can say, is that why the show works? And what it is, is I think the show is reminding you that it's okay to feel good. That sounds like such a weird thing to say, but so many times when you watch something that's meant to make you feel good, it feels corny. It feels, it just, it feels ingenuine. Ingenuine, is that a word? I don't think that's disingenuous. It feels fake. It feels fraudulent. It feels hokey. Ted Lasso, it's, there's, it's, it's, it's a weird line that it rides because there's always going to be a little bit of that hokiness to it, but it's, it's conscious of the hokiness and aware of it. And it's like it's, it's winking at you and nodding at you like, yeah. But you know that feels good because the thing about it is, it is genuine. It feels genuine. It doesn't feel forced. And it's, in a way, the show says it's okay for a show to be about good things happening and it can still work. Because so much of drama and comedy is still based on drama concepts, is focused on take a character have bad shit happen to him or her, then have worse shit happen to him or her. Keep dialing up the shit level. You know, like that's, that's a perfect encapsulation of Game of Thrones, isn't it? Right? Bad shit, worse shit, more worse shit, worse shit, bad ending. Like, doesn't mean there wasn't good stuff in there, but like, that's the dynamic. I think that's why when I talk about uh, TV shows, in the last year, I've been talking about the difference between what I call hard shows and soft shows. Hard shows are these shows that want to be taken seriously. The soft shows are just kind of like, eh, you'll probably enjoy this and may not pay attention every moment, but have it on in the background sometimes. Uh, one of the reasons I've been avoiding so many hard shows is because it just, it's exhausting. And it just, it feels, now it starts, it starts to feel formulaic too. Where it's like, oh, here's, this is interesting. I'm enjoying this, but I know within the next 10 to 15 minutes, something's bad is going to happen. Oh, these guys are in a relationship. That means they're going to have a fight soon. That means he's going to cheat soon. That means he's going to die soon. You're just waiting for those things to happen. And then that's why it gets so tiring watching those shows because you're, you're waiting for the shoe to fall. And Ted Lasso. Bad, bad stuff happens. There's challenges. It'd be boring if there weren't any challenges. But it feels so good when good things happen that that's what you remember more about the show. So if you're not watching Ted Lasso, dude, pony up five bucks to watch Apple TV for one month. If, and if you're only going to watch it for one month, actually wait until the end of August when season two is over. And then just shotgun both season one and season two, because 
I don't know. In, in terms of being different because of like it being okay to feel good, in terms of that being so different than everything else, it may in some ways be the best thing on television or at least the most interesting thing on television right now. That's a bold statement, but if I'm, if I'm going to talk about stuff and not make bold statements, what's the point, right? Would you tune into a podcast to hear mediocre, mild concepts? No. Get myself in trouble. Why not? Step in some shit every once in a while. Hmm. So, okay. So movie, this, this is the movie that I put, um, this week on film is flammable. My, uh, cinema Instagram. I say cinema Instagram because I only put up like independent and, uh, foreign films. I've been debating whether I'm going to put documentaries on there or if I should create a documentary account. I don't put up pop most popular films on there. the Joker. I put up the Joker on there because the Joker is, oh, it's not even called the Joker. Joker is a dark film. It is a difficult film. Uh, so I felt like it fit there, but this week I was looking through Mubi, M-U-B-I, which is the streaming service I get for free with my Scribd subscription, which is my, one of my book streaming subscriptions. I was flipping through there and because they have constantly, uh, rotating list of movies, you know, they have like 50 movies and then in a month, you know, like 20 of those will be gone and there'll be new ones. It's continually changing every month. I always just kind of scroll through to see what they have because, uh, cinema, especially foreign cinema and that super independent cinema, a lot of it's stuff you haven't heard, you know, it's not stuff that gets advertisements and none of that stuff. So you just got to scroll through and like, what's that? What's that about? What's that about? Oh, that sounds interesting. And I was in the mood for something a little more serious than a Hollywood film. But nothing like too, at the time, but nothing too investing. Saw this movie called The Last Wave. Uh, from the description, it sounded like it was going to be, it's an Australian film. It sounded like it was going to be the Australian version of A Time to Kill. It was about, from the description, a white lawyer takes on the case of some Aborigine men who are, um, accused of murder. I thought that's what it was going to be. That is not, I mean, that happens in the movie. That's kind of sort of the context of the film, but this film is so unique. It is uh, supernatural. First of all, to whether you believe what's happening in it or not, um, because the question of whether, whether that is real or not in the film is part of the film. It also is deceptive in the sense that it seems to, in the way that, like, I thought it was going to be a courtroom drama, it deceives me by not leading me down that road in a pleasant deception. Uh, it seems like it's going to be a movie about class separation and racism, and it does touch on that, but then it goes a different direction. It seems like these two characters, Chris Lee and Charlie, are going to be the tropes of the magical Negroes. But then it goes a different way. 
seems like David is going to be the white knight, but it goes a different way. And I thought that was wonderful that it kept me guessing. Um, I will say I'm going to, I'm going to put a content warning here real quick, because I'm going to say two words that are awful words, but I need to say them in order for you to understand context. If you go in to watch this film, one of them, you won't think is awful because you're American probably, or, um, I don't know how many Australia listeners I have, but not many Australian listeners comparatively. So you might not be aware of this word, which is abo. Abo being short for Aborigine, except while all of us might think that that is a cute term and just an abbreviation, it is not. It is from what I understand in a way, the Australian equivalent to the other word that people don't normally say and shouldn't say nigger. So the reason I'm giving you that context is because there's a specific scene in here that I thought, uh, would slip by the listener, which is, um, there's an Aborigine man dead on the coroner's table and a cop talking to a coroner. And he says this line about, um, he's, I'll, you know, I'll just tell you the quote. He says to the coroner, he says, you once told me that a cup of fresh water was enough to drown a sheep, right? And the coroner just kind of nods. And then he says, so half a cup would drown an abo, right? And then he laughs. Most of us outside of Australia might not get the context of that. First of all, he's comparing the man to an animal and saying that only he'd only need half the water to kill him. And then he's throwing in that word. He's throwing in the K word, which is the equivalent of the N word. And then you see later this, this scene where David is home with his wife. And he's taken on the case of these Aborigine men. And he is talking it over with her. And she has these books in front of her. She has a book in front of her and she's literally, it looks like she's in the encyclopedia. And she's in this encyclopedia reading about Aborigines. And these are people who lived in Australia. And the, the, this, this film takes place in 1977. But these are people who live in Australia and... She is so ignorant of Aborigines that she has to look up an encyclopedia while she's having this conversation with him to like contribute to the conversation. And he tells her that, um, one of them is coming over for dinner and she says to him, she says, you know, I'm a fourth generation Australian and I've never met an Aborigine before. And I think the reason I'm, I'm talking about this is you have all this buildup. Like this is going to be a film about racism. And then you have Chris and Charlie show up and there's magical stuff going on. And there's dream stuff going on. And I mentioned the magical Negro thing, which is a term that Spike Lee popularized, which is the idea that, um, there's this trope in American films where you have a white character 
who's the quote unquote hero of the film. And then you have this black character that shows up that's mystical or just really wise. And the only, the only role that this black character serves is to advise and help the white hero to be the hero instead of like being able to do, you know, like if you have, that's the ridiculous thing about it, right? If you had this wisdom, then you could be the hero yourself. And I thought that that's where this, all of this was going. And then it just goes sideways in a completely different direction and becomes something so different. And I read about this film afterwards. I don't normally do this, but I was so curious because it's such a strange film in that way. I read about it and the guy who plays Charlie in this film, I, I can't remember. I want to say he was a warden of some sort. Like he's, a, he's an important Aborigine man or was. And the only reason he agreed to do the movie was if there's certain things that they say about the law in, in the movie. And I don't mean like the law as in, uh, going to jail and stuff like that. I mean, like the, the Aborigine law, the law of, of life and existence and dream time. Um, he agreed that if, if the script had those things in it, then he would be in the movie. And Chris Lee, who is like the main Aborigine character is, I can't remember his, his real name. He has a one word name. Um, he was also the actor that was in Walkabout, which is another, uh, 70s film. Actually, is that Peter Jackson? Is that Peter Jackson's first film? It might be. Um, it's somebody's significance as far as the rest of the world knows. Uh, somebody's first film, I think. I want to say it's Peter. J no, it's maybe not Peter Jackson. It's, um. The guy who did Moulin Rouge and Strictly Ballroom, whose mind I'm, whose name I'm blanking on right now. I should just look it up because I sound like an idiot. It was his first film. IMDb Walkabout, 1971. And the director was, oh, Nicholas Rogue. Totally wrong. I don't know why. Nicholas Rogue is also a well-known director. And anyways, he, Chris Lee, which is the character's name, because I can't remember the actor's real name. He was the, oh, cool. Oh, man, I can't pronounce it. David G-U-L-P-I-L-I-L. Gulpili? Gulpilil? 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 You understand now. <laughs> it's hard to say. Uh, he was the only working Aborigine actor at the time this movie was made. So when the director, Peter Weir, was on set, he was continually checking with the two of them and making sure that all of the, all of the dialogue and all of the stuff about Aborigine culture that they were, that they approved of so that he wasn't coming off as this ignorant white dude making a movie about Aborigines. And I thought that that's probably the reason that this film seems like it's going to be the stereotypical thing about racism and it hints towards it. But that scene with the cop and him saying that word 
and then the wife not knowing anything. It just seems like it's going that way. And it really becomes about the concepts of uh, Aboriginal belief. That's the best I can say about it. And I hope you guys, nobody is terribly offended by my use of either of those terms, but I don't think I could have explained that scene without using them. I feel like this is the thing is, I know this was a joke that uh, Louis C.K., who's also probably not too popular with a lot of people right now. This is a joke he made one time about the N-word, but he said, you know, every time you say the N-word, you make me say the actual word in my head. So you get away with not saying the word, but then I say it in my head. And I always think about that where it's like, sometimes it feels like if you're going to have an intelligent conversation about the offense of the word, tiptoeing around it sometimes is almost more offensive than just saying the word once and saying, that's the word in quotations. I could be completely wrong about that, but wouldn't be the first time I was completely wrong about many things. Excellent film. Very strange. Um, Peter Weir, uh, if you know who he is, then you shouldn't be surprised that he makes strange films because the film that he made right before this is called uh, Picnic at Hanging Rock, which is a very strange film about, uh, I guess, sort of about time travel. Um, he's also the guy that directed The Truman Show many, many years later and Dead Poets Society, Mosquito Coast witness. So, uh, he has a very interesting, uh, filmography, almost a discography, very interesting filmography. So check that out. If you want to see some interesting 1970s Australian cinema, I enjoyed it. And actually I've never seen picnic at hanging rock. So I think I might need to watch that soon. Okay. One more technically two more because these things are connected thing in the media area before we move on to something else. So the book that I read this week, I, I should say the book that I finished this week was Aldous Huxley's A Brave New World, which holds an interesting place, I think, in popular culture. It's a book from 1932. Um, it's it's a book that's very popular. It seems like it's very popular with people who are more politically liberal, which is interesting because the book in a way is kind of an, an indictment of liberal culture, um, in, in the way that it's, it's almost like it's 1932. So it predates the hippies by a pretty considerable amount of time, but it's almost a book that asks the questions, what if the hippie hippies morals became the predominant morals. So in the book, like people don't, um, people don't have monogamy. Monogamy is against law. Everybody belongs to everybody else. If you get into a monogamous relationship, then you are robbing everyone else of that person. So it's really interesting that, um, people who lean left, which would be more towards, um, more tolerant of like, uh, less rigid sexual norms, uh, would be so into this book. And then of course, like people who are more conservative, 
don't like the book just because there's sex in it. I'm totally generalizing here. I just think it's interesting what people think of this book. Um, none of that's probably true. It's just an observation. I said I wanted to step in some shit every once in a while. Well, I just did. Uh, personally, I'm, I'm probably going to get more flack for what I'm about to say. I think the book is really boring. Everybody talks about it like it's such a great book. It's short, and I had a hard time getting through it. I like the world that's built. It's a very interesting dystopian world. The characters are interesting. The story is not. The plot is like a non-plot, almost. If you were to draw the plot of the story of the book out, it's not very compelling. And maybe because it was written in 1932, but I don't, I don't know. There's other books from that time that I think were interesting. Uh, but I've never really thought highly of Aldous Huxley as a wordsmith. Um, I've read Doors of Perception and Heaven and Hell twice each. And both times I seem to get out of those books and kind of feel the same way I got to the end of this book. Like, what did I just read? Like, I felt like I moved through the words, but they didn't really stick to me. But, like I said, the concept of the book is probably what the execution of the book, I don't think, is why it lasts. Even the ideas in the book, I think that's why, like I said, the thing about, like, the contradictions of the ideologies of people who like the book is even the concepts of the book don't stick. You know, it's like, it's kind of like 1984, and, like, everybody talks about 1984, like, uh, the world in 1984 is a far right-wing world, but it's actually not. Like, if you pay attention to the history and the things that they talk about in the book, um, 1984 is if the left went way too far. And it's, it's, it's actually a book where George Orwell confronted um, what would happen if socialism went wrong. And he was a socialist himself. So... I think that's the same thing with Brave New World in the sense like the concepts, the actual concepts the author embedded in it don't stick, but just certain other things do. And one thing that I think will stick from this book is the core question of it, which is, is it better to be happy or is it better to be free? Is it better to take pills and never feel sad? Or is it to feel, or is it better to feel pain and be free and be in danger? And I said two things here. So after I finished the book, uh, I know that on Peacock, they made a television adaptation of it. So I sat down and I watched the first episode of the television adaptation. I will say I only saw the one episode, but that one episode, the plot was more compelling than the plot of the book. It's still the same world. It's the same characters. They've just done different things with the plot. When I say they, the screenwriters, developers of this adaptation are, I think the guy's name is Brian Taylor. I can't remember what he had anything to do with. Um, David Weiner or Weiner, which is the guy who did Fear of the Walking Dead, and Grant Morrison. And Grant Morrison's the most interesting of the three to me because Grant Morrison is a comic writer. Wrote books such as um, The Invisibles. 
And uh, he's just, he's legendary in the comic world. He's legendary for uh, kind of the same thing that Alan Moore, who the two of them actually hate each other, I've heard, for being kind of these rebels that uh, kind of take things in a different direction and they bring kind of occult themes into their comics and occult symbol and occult symbol symbology so it's interesting to see uh, that he's attached to this like i said it's 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 interesting what they do there's a great uh this great moment with radiohead which does not feel cheesy at all like it totally fits into this and i don't mean the, the character the people of radiohead but i mean a radiohead song the only thing that didn't propel me any further to watch another episode yet was it also feels like what I was talking about earlier, where it's like, can we amp up the drama? Can we amp up the drama? Can we amp it up? There's this scene with this box of bullets and like, there's going to be a war, which is totally not in the book, which is fine. You know, like I said, the book was boring. So please elaborate on it. But it also felt like, oh, we're going to go that direction. And that, at that moment, it kind of derailed my interest in the show a little bit more because I thought it was going to be more of a mystery. Um, but then I was like, oh, it's going to be that. And I don't know. We'll see. Maybe I'll be wrong. Like I was wrong about season two of Ted Lasso. Uh, I guarantee I'm, I'm going to be wrong about a lot of things in this episode. Uh, speech voyage. <laughs> Let's talk about politics. <laughs> We're not actually going to talk about politics. We're going to talk about why I generally don't talk about politics. There's a reason I'm bringing this up. So first of all, one of the main reasons I don't talk about politics is because I don't fucking like politics. Give me a stomachache. When I go places and people are sitting and talking about it, it gives me a stomachache. I have opinions. I have beliefs. I just don't want to talk about it. I don't want to hear other people talk about it. Period. Maybe that's wrong. I don't care. That's how I feel. So I don't bring it into my podcast. And in the past, I have kind of, uh, I've, I've dipped my toes, I'll say, dipped my toes into the pool of letting a little bit of politics in. This is when I was doing random badassery. Um, and what I found was if you dip your toes into the pool, eventually in the pool, or sorry, in the toe that you're dipping in is politics. Eventually the politics takes over the whole damn pool. Uh, and it reminded me, there's this 1971 interview uh, in the Mianjin Quarterly with Kurt Vonnegut. And he has this quote about sexual content in his books and why there is never any sexual content in his books. And he said, there's a mechanical reason for avoiding adult sexual love in a book. The minute you introduce that element, the reader is not going to want to hear anything more about the factory system or what it's like to be a parachutist. And I kind of feel like the same thing about politics. Once you bring those into something, then it becomes that. Once you bring, you know, he goes on in the quote to say, you know, like, once it becomes about the guy trying to get the girl, they don't care about the rest of the story. It's just now. Does he get there? And the same thing with politics. Once you start to talk about politics, then you talk a little bit more about it, a little bit more about it, and then your show is about politics 
Look at Joe Rogan. Started out as a show with comedians talking shit. And now it's like uh, in a lot of, a lot of people consider it to be one of the more, uh, I don't want to say important, but one of the more popular platforms about politics. So that's one of the reasons, or those are the two reasons that I don't talk about politics. Besides, uh, a third reason would be we all have political beliefs already. We're all pretty fairly set and very few people, except for young people, even then I would doubt, are wandering around going, I wonder what I feel about politics. Generally, most people have those feelings set and no asshole on a podcast stating his opinions is going to change anybody's mind because they're not listening to have their minds changed. You really believe what you believe. Instead, what happens when we hear somebody talking about something, if we don't disagree, if we disagree with it, we just turn on something else that agrees with us. So there's like, no, you're achieving nothing, in my opinion. And I'm just not interested in telling people what to think. Now I am interested in telling people how to think. And that's the, oh, there's a distinction there that I, this is the main reason I want to talk about this. There's a distinction there. In common usage, we tend to say, don't tell me how to think. But what we actually mean is don't tell me what to think. Don't tell me what I should be thinking. How to think is about the mechanics of reason. It is about how we make decisions. It is about how we use our brain. And no matter what people think, it's always better for everyone in the world if people learn how to think more soundly, how to use their brain. Think about it this way. The how is the manner in which the engine works on a car. The what is who's inside the car. I'm not going to tell you who to put inside your car. I just want to make sure that your engine's in a good condition. That's what I'm interested in. So when I go into some of the stuff I'm going to talk about in a second, which is in a way you could almost say nearing or adjacent to politics, it's not about the politics. It's about the thought process and it's about the ideas and the questions and about how to think or how to not think in some of the cases. So just wanted to clarify that because, uh, I'm really in this iteration of the show. I haven't really gone into much of this type of stuff. I'm not going heavy. Don't worry. I'm not going heavy. And we are still going to the Amazon jungle. I know we're at an hour already. Told you this was going to be a longer episode. So first thing I want to talk about is Bill Cosby. <laughs> can I get myself any more trouble? Can I, can I list more people that, and things and words that people automatically hate in one episode? Uh, the reason I want to talk about Bill Cosby is because I was listening, I just discovered this new podcast called, did you Reddit? Reddit as in the website, R E D D I T and three people on the show, two gentlemen and a lady, they basically in every episode, they take a subreddit. And they check it out. They find out, you know, like what the, 
what is this community all about? And, you know, they kind of examine it and they just have a casual conversation about it. Uh, it's a really interesting show. I like it. It's really fun. Um, and in a recent episode, the episode was 192, uh, the subreddit structural engineering using Reddit to make sense of catastrophe. And the Cosby show is back. Ugh. That's the name of the episode. They talked a little bit about uh, the Bill Cosby situation with him being released from prison and gave me a very interesting perspective on what the district attorney might have been thinking. So that's that's what I wanted to share with you. Uh, in case you're living under a rock, Bill Cosby was convicted of sexual assault, drugging. Um, I think he only got convicted uh, with one one count with one woman drugging uh, a woman and sexually assaulting her while she was asleep. Apparently he did this 40, 50 times over the years, if not more. And he, I think it was like three years ago, went to prison. They just released him recently. They released him and they released him because the district attorney should not have been able to prosecute him because in a different case, he was given immunity. And in that case that he was given immunity, part of his testimony, he admitted to the sexual assaults, but because he was given immunity, that was supposed to be never be able to use that testimony against him. Hence the immunity thing. So when he was released from jail, I was like, I didn't know any of any of that had happened. I don't think most people did. I was like, what? the fuck and i think everybody was like oh we we talked about politics i will say this the one thing that i know for sure at least in my little sphere that the left and right have agreed upon in the last few months is that bill cosby should still be in jail i didn't hear anybody defend him anyone so what always baffled me about it when i heard he got out was what was it, what's going on here? You know, first it was like, was there some kind of crooked dealing going on here? You know, like did his money get him out? Is that what happened? And then it was, if the district attorney knew that he had given immunity, then why did they, you know, like, why did all this happen? Here's all this question. In this episode, the three hosts who all use their Reddit names, I don't know their real names. Uh, all talking about this and some interesting ideas came out. I don't know if they pulled this from a news or if they just kind of reasoned this out themselves, but apparently the case that was filed against Cosby, the one he was convicted on of sexual assault was filed a couple days before the statute of limitations ran out on it. It's still shocking to me that that rape has a statute of limitations. Um, or that it's such a short statute of limitations. Um, I feel like if you're going to have one, make it like 50 years or something like that. But, uh, I don't know, like maybe just not have one. That's probably a better plan. But anyways, if you didn't have one, you wouldn't have this situation. That's, that's my personal opinion. So the statute of limitations is about to run out and the did you read it people were discussing maybe the district attorney 
was looking at the situation and going, well, he admitted to it. We have immunity, but, you know, like if we don't do anything, this, this was the last, sorry, I forgot to say this case was the last case that was still within the statute of limitations. All the statute of limitations had run out on all the other cases. So if they just did nothing, then he gets away with everything. But if they convict him on this, despite that, at least he'd spend a couple years in prison while it worked itself out in the courts. And maybe they were thinking, there's a chance he might die there as well. And through that lens, it kind of makes more sense. Like, um, first of all, like the DA that granted him immunity in the other case was a different DA. Like that guy retired or moved on or probably got some other fancy job. This was a new DA that was making the decision to file the charges. So through that lens, it makes a little bit more sense. Like, well, screw it. Put him in jail for three years. If that's the best we can do, that's better than him serving zero jail time, which is the only other option that they had. But what's also, what also should be said, and maybe is the more uncomfortable thing to say about it is it's also good that he got out. Not good for Bill Cosby, not good for women, not good for anybody, but good for the legal system. Because even though he is guilty as sin and does deserve uh, probably to have his genitals cut off and hung on his forehead for the rest of his life, uh, they shouldn't be able to do that to charge someone despite the immunity. Because think about this, Bill Cosby is loaded. And if they did it to him, how many people in, you know, how many like 18 year old kids, how many possibly innocent people could they also use that same thing against and screw over? So it's good to see that the justice system, you know, the whole thing about justice being blind, it's good to see that happened here, even though the unfortunate consequence is that he's not in jail. The one thing that we can say for positive is, well, not for positive. One thing we can say that is positive about it is he's so damn old. Number one, he's not going to live much longer. Number two, I don't think any women are going to allow themselves to be alone near this old, decrepit pervert. Um, so the chances of him doing anything, uh, again, are slim. The one thing, the one really big thing that pisses it off, pisses all of us off though, is a smug son of a bitch feels like he got away with it. And that sucks. We need to do something about those statute of limitations. Maybe that's a political opinion. I don't think so. Because if the left and the right agree on this, then maybe we can agree on that. But I'm not even, which is funny, I'm not even associating myself with one side or the other. Because to be honest, like I said, I hate politics. So let's go a little bit uh, closer to that dangerous territory. Now let's talk briefly about the folks over at QAnon. This is something I ran across on Reddit. I'm laughing, but this is 
it's a little terrifying just because, yeah, you know what? I'm not going to preface this. I'm just going to read it to you. Um, QAnon followers are now accusing evangelical leaders of sex, child sex trafficking. So until recently, until as far as I know this, there's been a close relationship between the evangelical Christian community and QAnon. This seems to show a rift there. And that rift is that when I talked about poor skills on how to think, I think that QAnon is an epitome of that poor ability to think. Um, let me just read the actual quote here. Um, let me see, just the news source here. This is from a site that I've never heard of called deadstate.org. So take that with whatever grain of salt you need. On July 12th, RWW, which is Right Wing Watch, reported that MAGA pastor Jackson Lehmeyer, who launched a primary challenge to Oklahoma GOP Senator James Lank Lankford earlier this year because the senator didn't buy into conspiracy theories about the 2020 election, and who openly embraced QAnon, is now a target of QAnon adherents who accuse him of child sex trafficking. Here's the reason I included it, because they're accusing of child, him of child sex trafficking after he posted a photo of his daughter wearing red shoes. Yes, that's the link. That's the reason. Red shoes are a secret clue to child sex trafficking. Wow. Wow. It, it's hard to believe this is real. It's really hard to believe that's real. Somebody has a lot of time and has spent far too much guilty time masturbating to the Wizard of Oz. That's all I can say. Let's move on. <laughs> Um, what is going on here, Mr. Computer? Clicking, clicking, and nothing's happening. The next thing I want to talk about is about Apple. You may have seen recently that Apple's talking about um, scanning photos on the device end. In other words, uh, not sending your photos up to the cloud and scanning them, but scanning them on your device. And the reason they're doing this is to battle child pornography. Um, this is a really, this is a really hairy topic because it's far more complex than it seems. And just the thing I wanted to say about this, um, basically there's, I was always on the side and I, and there's still a part of me that is, it's always on the side that encryption is better when it comes to our messages, when it comes to everything, we should have our privacy. I don't like the idea of the government or anyone else spying on us without our permission. I don't. And I've always been on that side of it. What I didn't know or what I hadn't thought about and what a lot of people hadn't thought about was how much encryption also allows 
crime to flourish. In particular, what they're finding, the crime that flourishes the most because of encryption is child pornography. Because back in like the seventies, child porn was like passing around photos, physical photos, person to person, maybe, maybe through the mail. But now these sick fucks can take a picture with their phone and send it to another sick fuck or another hundred sick fucks. And when those messages become encrypted, they're safe. They're protected. This is something that Facebook, um, one of the few times that Facebook has done something that I think was made an ethically right statement and nobody believed them. Uh, everybody was pissed off at Facebook for Facebook messenger and WhatsApp not being fully end to end encrypted. Um, if you don't know what end-to-end -end encryption is, I'm sorry, um, because you should know by now, but essentially to put it in probably the most ignorant of terms, end-to-end -end encryption means the only people that can see the message that is sent is the person who sent it and the person who received it. That the services or whatever, the devices that are in between the people have no way to get into it. So if you think about it in the terms of mail, that would be like an envelope that only I can open to put stuff into and only the person who receives it can open it. That nobody is capable of opening it. That the postal service, a person who finds a letter on the ground, none of these people have a physical ability to get inside that envelope. That's what end-to-end -end encryption is for, for internet traffic. So for example, Android or iOS, Apple, Google, these companies can't see your messages in any way. This is what that whole thing about the, the sniper, um, and the whole wanting to crack the iPhone thing was many years ago with Jeff Sessions, where he was trying to crack, get the FBI to crack an iPhone. And then they paid some Israeli group to do it. That's what this was all about. And. What Facebook, Facebook's argument against encryption was like, there are things that we can do now that we can't do anymore once we go to end in it, end to end encryption. And one of those things is to catch child pornographers on their platform and in particular on their messenger platform. I don't know the exact numbers if I remember correctly. Uh, I want to say that the number of images before Facebook started moving, and they're not encrypted yet, but they're moving towards it. Before they started moving towards encryption, the number of images that they caught and reported was something like 8 million, like some huge astronomical number. Apple, on the other hand, who has end-to-end -end encryption on, I think, on the messages only, um, was only able to report like 200. Uh, and the reason for that is they can't see them. So what, what a company like Facebook can do without end -end encryption is when a message is gone, it can go through a computer algorithm that goes, is there anything here that looks like kid porn? But once it's encrypted, they can't do that anymore.
And that's kind of the, that's kind of thing that's biting both ends of the ass here. You know, we want privacy, but we also don't want that shit going on. And that's the weird thing. And that's what, what Apple's kind of trying to do here by putting the, by having the device scan the photos is basically they're saying, we're not going to be able to see what's going on here, but you know, if you got some nasty, nasty photos of underage people, your phone is going to know that. And it is a little creepy to think about your phone reporting on you, but I don't know. It's such a hard thing because it's like, you don't want these people to continue to be able to do what they're doing. But then you also have to ask the question, like, are we opening a door that we don't want to open? You know, like maybe today it's just those people that we all agree are nasty, nasty people. And maybe tomorrow it's somebody else. That's a little more questionable. I don't know. Something we should all be thinking about when we, when we buy our devices, we lease our devices. We spend our money. Every dollar we spend with a company is a vote for that company. Remember that. Um, so you have to, this is, this is, this is the thing about technology. We're reaching a place with technology where we're, we're finally having to confront the implications of the technologies. And there are things that we're not ready for because they're so novel. There are things that we've never had to confront before. And it's going to be sticky. It's going to be hairy. It's just like a lot of this political strife that's going on. This is the consequence long, not the long term, but the medium term consequences of the internet period, because you're, these groups are able to communicate and to cluster together in a way that they weren't before the internet was there. And we're able to hear about this stuff when we aren't able to hear about it before. Just the, the hyper intensity of our communications ability also with it brings strife because every technology, no matter what it is, every technology has a jagged edge. There's always, there's always something to pay with it. You know, with the, uh, you, if you've ever heard of the Luddites, the Luddites were, uh, a group of people. It's a term that's used more colloquial now, but the original Luddites were against the cotton gin and they were against the cotton gin because the cotton gin put human beings out of work. So they were anti cotton gin. They were anti technology because this, the hard edge of that cotton gin is like, yeah, you could produce more cotton and the cotton was, uh, it was done faster and people didn't have their fingers ripped apart like they were when they picked cotton, but all the people that were doing that we're going to be reduced by, I don't know, like decimated in the true sense of decimation, which means reduced from 100 to 10 decimalized, reduced by 90%. That's what decimated means. So every technology with it is going to come with a very difficult, difficult question and difficult struggle. And at the pace that we develop technology, oh my God, it's scary. All right, let me drink this water.
One hour and 20 minutes. My goodness. And we haven't even touched on this Amazon stuff now. So this Amazon stuff, this is, this is something that kind of, hmm, it's something, it's a question that I ran across. I was listening to Tim Ferriss' show, uh, number 523 with Dennis McKenna, The Depths of Ayahuasca, um, 500 Sessions, Fundamental Advanced Topics, Science, Church, Leanings, Warnings, and Beyond. Uh, sorry, Churches. Earnings, warnings, and beyond. So the full name of the episode. Listen to that episode, and Dennis McKenna mentioned that like ninety percent of the Amazon is still unstudied as far as botany and ethno um, botany go. And I was like, I was wondering why, you know, because there's this whole thing about like the Amazon is full of so many things that we haven't even discovered yet, and how many cures for medicine could be there. So my question was, you know, like, why have, after all this time, why have we still not studied the Amazon? And the question was just kind of floated around in my head. And then I started reading this book randomly called, uh, actually, I was already reading the book. I just hadn't got to the part that was relevant. The book is called The Lost City of Z, A Tale of Deadly Obsession in the Amazon by David Gran. And David Gran is a reporter journalist. Um, and the book is about this, it's the recounting of the story of British explorer, Captain Percy Fawcett. Um, in 1925, Percy Fawcett and his sons and an expedition, a full expedition went into the Amazon jungle looking for this legendary city, the lost city of Z and they disappeared. They disappeared in the jungle and no one to this day has found traces of them. Nobody knows how they died and no one's found the city if it ever existed. So part of the book and this, the two are interlaced. It's not just like half and half that it's like chapter one of one and chapter of the other. And one chapter will be about Percy Fawcett and the next chapter will be about Grant himself because he himself decides that in learning about Fawcett, he needs to go to the Amazon himself and look for the lost city of Z. And uh, it's a really interesting book. There's a movie that was made of it as well, which I haven't watched. I've been coincidentally reading a lot of books that have movies and TV shows associated with them. So I think whenever I finish this book, I'm only like, uh, let's say like 30% of the way through the book. Whenever I finish it, I, uh, I watch the movie as well, I'll let you guys know. But this is where this episode is going to be a little different. This part of the episode is going to be a little different because there's so much in here about the Amazon. And that helps to answer my question about why it's still unstudied. And this is also the reason I was never able to craft it into an episode that I'm actually going to be reading liberally to you from the book. There's so many passages from the book that I'm going to read to you. And the reason I'm going to do that is because I, I tried to summarize it. And the moment I started to summarize some of these things, I realized that the exact descriptions that he uses are the part that's important. It's the part that gets across the intensity of this challenge that is presented by going into the Amazon jungle. So rather than suck out all the numero, I'm going to give you the whole thing. I'm going to, I'm going to read you read to you directly from the book. And I don't feel bad to do this to Mr. 
grand to read so much from his book because in reality, at best, I'm probably reading four to 5% of his book, if even, if even. Um, and I will, I'll give you a little content warning here too. This is not for the weak stomached in the sense that, uh, we're going to be talking about diseases, uh, and awful things that happen to the body from diseases. And in particular, if, if hearing about insects make you shiver or itch or get the creeps, you're probably not going to like this because we're going to talk about some nasty stuff with animals and insects. Okay. There's the warning trigger warning, which I'm learning to appreciate why they're valuable. Um, let's go forward. Let's first talk about the terrain. So there's not a ton in there that I could really just grab a passage and tell you about the difficulty of the train. So I just pulled two small things that kind of give you a hint. Um, it's really hard to summarize terrain stuff. Let's just say it's harsh. Um, occasionally faucet and chivers chivers is is faucets like a right-hand man on this. Uh, you're going to hear his name a lot. Official, uh, occasionally faucet and chivers came upon a footbridge strung together with palmetto slats and cables that stretched more than a hundred yards over a gorge and swung wildly in the wind like a shredded flag. And then they talk about like having, wanting to push their mules across this terrifying bridge and the mules won't go. So they actually have to like blindfold the mules to get them over it. Awful. And this is, this is like stuff that they've, they're encountering before they even get into the actual Amazon. By 3000 feet where the heat was palpable, they encountered roots and vines creeping up the mountainside. Then Fawcett, drenched in sweat, peered into a valley and saw trees shaped like spiders and parachutes and clouds of smoke, waterways threading back and forth for thousands of miles, a jungle canopy so dark it appeared almost black. Amazonia. Now there's this, one of my favorite films, it's a, I think it's also a 70s film, is Fitzcarraldo. This is a book, a book, some movie by Werner Herzog. And it's, it's actually based on a true story about this guy. I'm not going to go into the movie a lot because I think we'll talk about this more in another episode, but it's about a guy who wants to build, uh, he wants to build an opera in the Amazon jungle, which sounds crazy, except for the fact that there were all these really loaded rubber barons down there at the time. This takes place at about the same time as faucets, you know, the 1920s. Uh, and so the whole movie of Fitzcarraldo is about this guy wants to build this opera house, but in order to build this opera house, he needs to make a ton of money. And in order to make a ton of money, he's going to he decides he's going to make it off these rubber barons and he has this plan. I'm trying to figure out how to describe this because it's, it's not easy to describe. So there is a section of the Amazon, a specific section of the Amazon that is shaped like a Y or like a wishbone. Okay. And the right tributary of that Y flows upstream and the left side of that tributary flows downstream towards the Y, towards the junction of the Y. Okay. And between those two, there's just 
huge swaths of land. There are rubber uh, plantations along parts of this river, but there's this one section between the tributaries that is fertile for uh, farming rubber trees from getting the sap from the rubber trees to make rubber. But nobody can build a plantation there because there's no way to get the rubber back. Because the problem is when you flow up the right tributary uh, up to the plantation, first of all, very difficult because of all the things we're going to talk about and also um, lots of natives with poison-tipped, and this is not fictional, this is the truth, bows and arrows and uh, dart, I think they had blow darts, um, with poison tips and just like waiting to kill people as they go up the right side of the river, plus all all of the nature that they would have to confront. That alone is half the reason. The other, or sorry, one third of the reason. The second third of that reason is if for some reason you were able to get far enough up that right side and cross over that land in the middle, which is your second obstacle, there's a huge hill or mount or small mountain in the middle between there that you would have to get over to get to the other tributary. Once you got to the third, uh, the other side, to that other tributary with your, whatever you had farmed from this new plantation, if you took that down river, there are rapids and you would most likely crash your boat. So he has this theory that he could get a boat up the right side of the tributary and then take the boat and literally carry it over the mountain or sorry, in the real story, over the hill to the other side and then bring him back. And if he can do that, he will get, he will be loaded because it's like the, this prime land for rubber. Okay. So that's the plot of the fictional movie, which is based on a true story. This is where things get a little confusing. There is a documentary that was made after this movie was made, Fitzcarraldo. And the documentary is called The Burden of a Dream or The Burden of Dreams. Let me check on that. Make sure I get the right title. The Burden. It's an... I loved the movie, but after watching the documentary, it made it one of my favorite films of all time. But you have to watch the two of them together because what happens is unbelievable because Werner Herzog decides that... In order to do, it's the burden of dreams, 1982 by Les Blank. In order to do the movie, he decides he's actually going to take a boat up that right side of a tribute to the tributary and actually in real life, take this boat over a mountain to the other side and film it. And the documentary is about how ridiculously insane that is and how ridiculously crazy it is. So we'll talk a little bit more about that movie, maybe another time. I need to rewatch it too. But there's a quote 
that Werner Herzog has about the jungle that I wanted to tell you about. Him having filmed, oh, that's something else I should tell you about the movie. Uh, the movie was fraught with more problems than that. For example, the original lead actor, I think, was going to be Jason Robards. And there was a, a secondary character, like a supporting character, like his, basically his chivers, because I'm pretty sure in some way that this is, uh, also references Fawcett in some ways. Basically his right-hand man was going to be played by Mick Jagger. And when they were down there, uh, Jason Robards caught, I think it was malaria <laughs> and he had to come back to the United States because he was so sick. He had to come back to the United States and get better. And by that time, Werner Herzog was like, what am I going to do? Like, I can't just, I'm already in the Amazon. I've got everything here. So he had to recast the role. So he called up his best friend and also his leading man in many of his movies, uh, Klaus Kinski to play the role. But in the process or in the time that it took for Robards to leave and for Klaus Kinski to come in, uh, Mick Jagger had to leave because he had to go on tour. So, or record an album, one of the two. So he lost that character and he had to rewrite the script to take that character out. Just a nightmare. So he knows, Werner Herzog knows what the Amazon jungle is truly like. And he said, we have to get acquainted to this idea that there is no real harmony as we have conceived it. But when I see this, I see this all full of admiration for the jungle. It is not that I hate it. I love it. I love it very much, but I love it against my better judgment. Wow. He's eminently quotable, by the way. So let's, uh, let's get into some of the gnarly stuff. Let's talk about some of the animals. Theodore Roosevelt, after exploring an Amazon tributary in 1914, called the piranha the most ferocious fish in the world. He added, they will rend and devour alive any wounded man or beast. For blood in the water excites them to madness. The head with its short muzzle staring malignant eyes and gaping, cruelly armored jaws is the embodiment of evil ferocity. And then Gon, David Grand, sorry, not Gon, David Grand himself goes on to say, I had read about almost translucent toothpick-like creatures in, explore, in the book Exploration Fawcett. More feared than piranhas, it is one of the few creatures in the world to survive strictly on a diet of blood. Uh, did I forget to put the part where the name of the fish is in here? I did. The name of the fish is right here. Let me... Kinderis. These are the Kinderis fish he's talking about. Uh, more feared than piranhas, it is one of the few creatures in the world to survive strictly on a diet of blood. It is also called the vampire fish of Brazil. Ordinarily, it burrows its gills of a f its gills. Sorry, ordinarily it burrows in the gills of a fish and sucks its blood. But it also strikes human orifices, a vagina or an anus. It is perhaps most notorious for lodging in a man's penis, where it latches on irrevocably with its spines. Unless removed, it means death. And in the remote Amazon, victims are reported to have been castrated 
in order to save them. In another passage, he says, When bathing, Fawcett nervously checked his body for boils and cuts. The first time he swam across a river, he said, There was an unpleasant sinking feeling in the pit of my stomach. In addition to piranhas, he dreaded candiris and electric eels, or puroquas. I hope I'm saying that correctly. The latter were living batteries. They sent up to 650 volts of electricity coursing through the bodies of their victims. They could electrocute a frog or a fish in a tank of water without ever touching it. The German explorer scientist Alexander von Humboldt, who traveled along the Orinoco River in the Amazon at the beginning of the 19th century, wrote, One shock is sufficient to paralyze and drown a man, but the way of the Puraqua is to repeat the shocks to make sure of its victim. And there's, there's one point in this adventure for Fawcett where, and this is from his journals, they are canoeing down the river. And Fawcett and his, and his men, they spot something big moving in the water besides them. So they pull out their guns and they fire at it. Quote, it was an anaconda. In his reports to the Royal Geographic Society, Fawcett insisted that it was longer than 60 feet, though much of the anaconda was submerged and it was surely smaller. The longest officially recorded one is 27 feet, 9 inches. At that length, a single anaconda can still weigh over a ton and because of its elastic jaw muscles, swallow a deer whole. In another passage, while moving through the forest, Fawcett and his men were more susceptible to predators. Once a pack of white-lipped wild pigs stampeded toward Shivers and the interpreter, who fired their guns in every direction as Willis scampered up a tree to avoid being shot by his companions. Even frogs could be deadly to the touch. A philobates terribilis, which is found in the Colombian Amazon, has enough toxins in it to kill a hundred people. One day, Fawcett stumbled upon a coral snake whose venom shuts down the central nervous system of its victim, causing the person to suffocate. In the Amazon, Fawcett marveled, the animal kingdom is against man, as it is nowhere else in the world. Yeah, intense, right? More water there? Let's talk about the insects now. Oh my, this is, this is the gnarliest section. So, warning you again. But it wasn't the big predators that he and his companions fretted about most. It was the ceaseless pests. The sapa ants that could reduce the men's clothes to rucksacks and rucksacks to thread in a single night. The ticks that attached like leeches, another scourge and the red hairy chiggers that consumed human tissue, the cyanide-squirting millipedes, the parasitic worms that caused blindness, the burning flies that drove their ovipositors through clothing and deposited larval eggs that hatched and burrowed under the skin, the almost invisible biting flies called piums 
that left the explorers' bodies covered in lesions. Then there were the kissing bugs, which bite their victims on the lips, transferring a protozoan called Trypanosoma cruzi. Twenty years later, the person thinking he had escaped the jungle unharmed would begin to die of heart or brain swelling. Nothing, though, was more hazardous than the mosquitoes. They transmitted everything from malaria to bone crusher fever to elephantitis to yellow fever. Mosquitoes, mosquitoes constitute the sing, chief single reason why Amazonia is a frontier still to be won, Wildred Pierce wrote in his 1952 book, The Amazing Amazon. Fawcett and his men wrapped themselves in netting, but even this was insufficient. The PMs settled on us in clouds, Fawcett wrote. We were forced to close both ends of the boat's palm-leaf shelter with mosquito nets and to use head veils as well. Yet in spite of that, our hands and faces were soon a tiny, a mass of tiny, itching blood blisters. Meanwhile, pulverina, which are so small, they resemble powder, hid in the hair of Fawcett and his companions. Often all that the men could think about was insects. Six months into the expedition, most of the men, including Chibbers, were sick with fever. They were overcome with insatiable thirst, skull-splitting headaches, and uncontrollable shivering. Their muscles throbbed so much that it was hard to walk. They had contracted, in most cases, either yellow fever or malaria. If it was yellow fever, what the men feared most was spitting up mouthfuls of blood, the so-called black vomit which meant death was near. When it was malaria, which according to one estimate, more than 80% of the people then working in the Amazon contracted, the men sometimes experienced hallucinations and could slip into a coma and die. At one point, Fawcett shared a boat with four passengers who fell ill and perished. And on top of all that, there were still the natives who were not so keen on foreigners traipsing through their jungle. Fawcett had been told that the Pacagora Indians lived along the banks of the Abunad River and had a reputation for kidnapping trespassers and carrying them into the forest. Two other tribes, the Peritinan, farther up north, and the Kanichana in the southern Moho Plains, were said to be cannibalistic. According to a missionary in 1781, when the Kanichana captured prisoners in their wars, they either kept them forever as slaves or roasted them to devour them in their banquets. They used as drinking cups the skulls of those whom they had killed. Although Westerners were fixated on cannibalism and often exaggerated its extent in order to justify their conquest of indigenous peoples, there is no question that some Amazonian tribes practiced it, either for ritualistic reasons or for revenge. So why would you go, right? Says that Fawcett, he told them from the outset, quote, Fawcett made sure that the men understood what they were getting themselves into 
Anyone who broke a limb or fell sick deep in the jungle would have little chance of survival. To carry the person out would jeopardize the welfare of the entire party. The logic of the jungle dictated that a person be abandoned. Or as Fawcett grimly put it, he has his choice of opium pills, starvation, or torture if he is found by savages. So, why is 90% of the Amazon still unexplored? That's why. <laughs> but here's the thing, too. Um, this is all predicated, this whole idea is predicated on the idea that this jungle is full of medicines. The, the idea of the Amazon being virgin and full of miracle cures is more the imagination of European adventurers and basically fodder for movies like Sean Connery's 1992 film, Medicine Man. It's a soothing fantasy. It's, it's meant to make the world uh, feel good about the threats of cancer and AIDS and Ebola. Don't worry. There's miracle cures out there, right? It's meant for us. And it's been used to we're going to go, I'm going to go into this in another episode because the book I'm about to quote, I've been reading it and there's a lot to talk about this. So let me stop myself. There's a lot to talk about this idea, this fantasy of the miracle cures. Um, in Ethnobotany of, in the Ethnobotany of Eden, Rethinking the Jungle Medicine Narrative, Robert A. Vokes writes, as a consequence, tropical landscapes and their indigenous forest dwellers were saddled from the beginning with a collection of culturally con collected, sorry, culturally constructed and often romanticized images, pivoting according to the need of the narrator from virgin to defiled, sublime to horrific, and salubrious to disease-ridden. Among these was the idea that the biblical Garden of Eden, God's sacred oasis of perpetual spring, healing leaves, and life everlasting, was hidden deep in the primordial rainforest. We'll go into that a little bit more. There's a whole lot. I mean, the guy's whole book is about that. There's a whole lot to that that I want to share with you guys. I've been learning a lot about uh, what the consequences of that narrative actually are. And it, yeah, it's complicated. In, uh, I was reminded of a passage in Elizabeth Gilbert's book, Big Magic. In this passage, she talks about, uh, or the idea for her novel. She wrote this novel about the Amazon jungle, and she talks about where the origins of that are. And I think it gives a, another perspective to add here onto just how powerful the Amazon jungle is. The idea was based on a story that my sweetheart, Philippe, had told me one night about something that had happened in Brazil back when he was growing up there in the 1960s. Apparently, the Brazilian government had a notion to build a giant highway across the Amazon jungle. This was during an era of rampant development and modernization, and such a scheme must have seemed stupendously forward-thinking at the time. The Brazilians poured a fortune into this ambitious plan. The international development community poured in many more millions. The staggering portion of this money immediately disappeared into a black hole of corruption and disorganization. But eventually, 
enough cash trickled into the right places that the highway project finally began. All was going well for a few months. Progress was made. A short section of the road was completed. The jungle was being conquered. Then it started to rain. It seems that none of the planners of this project had fully grasped the reality of what the rainy season means in the Amazon. The construction site was immediately inundated and rendered uninhabitable. The crew had no choice but to walk away, leaving behind all their equipment under several feet of water. And when they returned many months later, after the rains had subsided, they discovered to their horror that the jungle had basically devoured their highway project. Their efforts had been erased by nature, as if the laborers and the road had never existed at all. They couldn't even tell where they had been working. All of their heavy equipment was missing too. It had not been stolen. It had simply been swallowed. As Philippe told it, bulldozers with tires as tall as a man had been sucked into the earth and disappeared forever. It was all gone. Fuck. <laughs> right. So uh, let's go back to the burden of dreams because there is one more quote from Werner Herzog that I think says it all. That ends this perfectly. And I'm, am I, I think I'm going to try to imitate him. Let's see. Taking a close look at, at what's around us there, there is some sort of harmony. It is the harmony of overwhelming and collective murder. Okay, that's a bad Werner Herzog. Awful. Um, but yeah, powerful. So that's why 90% of the Amazon is still left undiscovered. And that's the last of the things I had to share. So let's, uh, let's get to some of the outros. I told you guys I had some news to share with you. So I'm, I'm working on a new website. Um, this is actually the thing that I was working on when I got the ocular migraine. Um, I just wanted a place to combine the blog and the newsletter and all the show notes into one place. So that everything is not parsed out in like five, six different places. I want to put everything in one place. So I'm trying to learn how to use this ghost blog thing, which is cool, but uh, not easy. Uh, I also want to take my old blog archive, stuff that I wrote back in like 2014, 2016, stuff like that, put that all up. I also want to take all of the different podcast shows that I've done and put them all on this website too. So the whole catalog of uh, random badassery, uh, all the other shows that I kind of started and didn't go anywhere. I'm going to put them all together in one place and just make it public for everybody. Um, this will also allow me as I move forward with, um, Patreon to, instead of the thing about Patreon, there's so many good things about Patreon, but the one thing that, that sucks, if you become a patron and I have a bunch of stuff in there. It really sucks to go back and like find stuff that's already in there. It's, it's not like a blog, you know, where you can like search through it really easy. It's just like one feed and you just have to keep scrolling back to find stuff. So I think what I, what I want to continue to use Patreon, but I'm going to, there's an integration between Ghost and Patreon. And what I'm going to do is continue to do the audio bonus stuff that I've been doing for patrons, uh, every week, 
I'm going to continue to do that on Patreon because it gives everybody an individual uh, feed that they can put into whatever podcast player they want. But then if I do anything that's not audio, I'm going to do it on this new website. And then I'll make it so that the, the patrons have access to it because, through that integration. So that's where I'm going. That's going to take a while, but that's, that's where I'm going towards it. But also part of this is I'm upgrading the voice message system. So the voice message system that I currently have with the, the, play, the place that I'm doing the website now is, uh, it's great. Uh, it's a two minute limit, I think on messages and, but you have to be on the computer to do it. So going with the new website, I wanted to do something a little bit, just slightly more robust. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to move everything to Google voice. I have a Google voice number. It's literally just a phone number. So you don't have to be on the computer. You can just pick up your phone, call and leave a voice message. And it's a little bit longer. The Google voice, I tested this out earlier, left myself a message to see how long it would go. Three minutes. So you have three minutes. It gives you a little bit more room to tell a story or something like that, um, to ask a question or whatever you want to do. Um, so you, now you can just use a normal phone to leave a message. And uh, if you want to do that now, you can do it right now. It's up already. The, the Google voice is up and live already. So I will put this in the show notes as well. But if you want to leave me a message or ask me a question, all you have to do is call 1-669-245-6098. 1-669-245-6098. And use the answering machine. Leave me a message. Um, yeah, I'm excited about that. I think it'll be a lot, a lot easier for everybody. Uh, another thing I wanted to always do in these episodes, of course, is to thank the supporters of our own Patreon. You guys are my bread and butter. I love you guys. Um, if you guys, anybody that's listening, that's not a patron wants to become one easy to fix. Just go over to patreon.com forward slash chat hall and become a patron. And with that, you are going to have access to the bonus audio I was just talking about. Um, but more than anything, you'll be supporting the show and, uh, you'll be continuing to, uh, you know, propelling me forward, which uh, benefits everybody that's getting it for free as well. And, uh, that's okay. That's, a, that's, that's the way, uh, things work. You love something enough, then, uh, you invest in it, you pay for it. And, uh, if you're not quite there yet, then maybe you just consume it for free. I've definitely listened to a lot of podcasts for free for years. Um, this year was the first year that I really decided to start supporting stuff. So if you're in that same place, please become a patron. But if you're not, don't feel guilty. It's just an option. Um, like I said, the new website's going to take a little bit of time, but you can still go to it matters, but it doesn't.com to the current website, um, for all the links. Um, eventually that URL will be the new website. So no matter what, if you go to it matter, it matters, but it doesn't.com. I'm losing the ability to speak. I need some water. No matter when you listen to this, if you go to that, you will either get the old website or the new website, but it'll be the same URL. Uh, and actually I'm going to, I'm going to throw something in here real quick before we get out of here. There was a, a time <laughs> not too long ago, about five, maybe 
maybe as much as 10 years ago, where I started to look at payphones, you know, public payphones, and kind of had this weird realization that, you know, in a way, there are dinosaurs. Like, we're literally in, in our time, and especially in 10 years since I was doing this, we have watched payphones, public payphones, slowly go extinct. And I just thought that was so fascinating. So what I started doing is every time I saw one, I'd take a picture of it. This was like my first days on Instagram. I'm going to start doing that again. Every time, uh, I mean, I'm not in public a ton right now, but every time I see a payphone, I'm going to take a picture of it and I'm going to post it. So along those lines, I, I changed my main Instagram, Books Till You Barf. I changed it back to the real channel just so it matched the Twitter name. Um, same account. It's just back to the original name. And I'm going to post those payphones there if I, if I see them. And actually what I might do is go back through my photo album and find all the ones from the past. Oops, burp. There's a present for you guys. The reason I'm bringing up the payphone thing though is what about, this is the, this is a weird thing that happened. I took them for me and I was posting them online. And somehow along the lines, people started to associate me with payphones. So every time they saw one themselves, they would post it and they would tag me. And it was so cool. And it went on for years, years after I stopped taking pictures of payphones. I would still get one every once in a while, you know, thinking of you. And I loved that. So uh, the reason I'm bringing it up for you guys is I'm going to put a challenge out to you guys. When you see a payphone, snap a picture of it, post it, and tag me so that I can see it. Let's see some payphones. Let's, let's capture our, our living fossils. Let's capture the dinosaurs as they're slowly going extinct. Let's catalog that together. So you can tag... Real Chat Hall on Instagram or on Twitter. It's the same same thing. So that's it. Long episode. I hope it was enjoyable. Uh, I hope we got through that uh, semi-politics section. Okay. Everybody's unscathed. Nobody's outraged by the fact that I refuse to uh, stake a claim in, in, in either side's camp because I hate politics in general. Um. What's more important to me is what we say at the end of these messages. Um, be kind and be true to yourself. I love you, babies. Bye-bye.